tone means uh microphones are hot and we are uh, gonna have another po- conversation for the dissect podcast which is not occurring in the dissect podcast studio we're actually in a fully carpeted bedroom <laughs> in an airbnb in uh beautiful moab i'm sitting here with sean kingry and uh mr tim matthews and we have uh completed uh i don't know the bike race today Felt a little bit like racing at points, but I wasn't up front, so. (laughs) (laughs) It was a race for me. Yeah. Um, It was a race for me. I was eating my stem for a good chunk of the day. I I came back having had my teeth kicked in, and I don't know (laughs) what. (laughs) Um, Anyway, but uh, we, um, obviously, if you've listened to the podcast before, Sean and I have raced our bikes a little bit. Tim and I have raced our bikes less together, but um, we did, I think actually we all shared team colors at one point, did we not? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. The The church Church of the big ring. Of the big ring. (laughs) I kind of miss it in a weird way. There was some, there was some fun edicts on, I had a poster that got made. Anyway, um, but I don't... I don't think we're going to talk that much about bike racing today um, because I have the opportunity to um, not interrogate, that would be the wrong word, but to have a conversation um, uh, about all things, or in this context, um, straight edge, which I'm going to, I'm going to blast my ignorance about its origins, but I, I believe it had origins in the music scene. Yes. Yep. Maybe as a reaction to some shitty human behavior. I would agree. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, Sean played in a in a band yeah lots of bands lots of bands um all sort of straight edge theme straight edge or anarchist kind of thing yes thing yes um and tim you had some a relationship with one of those at least one of the kind of more interesting bands yeah i i've heard about and and so i kind of like to just to have um i recently have had uh you know some uh personal experience with some, what I would consider like, oh, let's see, I would consider non-representative elements of what I, my previous experience was. Um, And, you know, not, you know, certain individuals not necessarily upholding what I had thought were like, oh, you know, interest, the the, the interesting, helpful, meaningful tenets of this idea and i don't know i just felt like today after talking a little bit with sean and your friend came out from new york who you know had been 
Um, as you just told us right before we, we started that, you know, he had, he had been involved in strategy and then due to certain circumstances and not. And you said something, Tim, that about to the effect that of all the, you know, the people that I started with, you're the sole survivor in terms of like upholding the idea. Yeah, from, from when I got involved, you know, my like little click in high school. And is this um, Arizona? This or? is Arizona, okay. yeah. Suburbs of Phoenix. Gilbert, Arizona. Gilbert, nice. Yeah, um, I you know ran with a few guys in high school that were straight edge, and we kind of found it at the same time. And yeah, they're all you know have moved away from it and are living their lives, and they're still awesome people and good friends. And I just maybe I'm lucky that I still feel the same way I do about it as I did then. Yeah. And in terms of the sort of the musical piece of it, um, have, let's see, how much has that changed, I guess, because obviously it, it has. Hmm. I mean, I still feel like I'm really connected to hardcore and like straight edge hardcore music. Um, living here in Moab, it's, you know, made it more difficult to be active in a hardcore community because there just doesn't exist here. Yeah. Like it, you know, exists for my friend Brett in New York City where he lives, you know. It's, oh my God, it shows every night. Yeah. yeah. Or something. You know, it was his quote this morning. Yeah, that was his quote. <laughs> yeah. Like, for me, I have to make a, you know, almost like request time off of work to travel up to Salt Lake or. You know, maybe there's a random show in Grand Junction that I could catch, but, you know, hardcore bands aren't touring in Moab. I would guess not, yeah, actually. Yeah. And, and even, you know, I w would say that maybe, you know, let's see, are there fewer hardcore bands now, or do they just, do they tour less, I guess? Because, I mean, I felt pretty, there, there was a, I think, uh, Judge and some of the guy, bands played earlier this year in Salt Lake. Yeah, yeah. And I went to that um, show. Like I made okay. an effort to go to go, go see to, that show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I I would I would not agree that there are fewer bands. Okay. They're just younger bands that are okay coming up. You know, like you know the guys in Judge. They're like fifty years old. So you know, it's hard to be in a band and not make any money and tour the world when you're 50. Well, there's that. And then there's also the, you know, having held the ideal for that long. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I mean, I was actually impressed at the sick of it all show mostly that, and, and I thought I decided in my own head that it had something to do with the culture of the music and the, and the, um, and the idea, but they were able to stick together while many, many other bands, that didn't maybe have a guiding philosophy of some kind, all, you know, and many good bands all just fucking blew apart due to individual differences because there wasn't, look, we didn't, we didn't like congregate around a philosophical idea right. or ideal. Um, therefore, we don't really have that much to hold us together when shit gets hard. And if, I, I don't know, Sean, no, I think no, you said I, they've been together for 30 yeah, years? Yeah, Sick of It All has been together 30 years. And I think, too, because they were never 
like strictly one thing. And I think that's what made it tough for a band like Judge is I think um, Mike Judge's thing was he wanted to be the most straight edge of all straight edge bands. Like, But if you look at the other players in that band, like John Purcelli, and I don't want to turn this into a music nerd thing, but it might end up that it way. It may well end but, up that way, and that'll be just fine. Um, but he also played in Youth of Today, and then he went on to Shelter, and you know he lives, when he isn't a musician, he lives almost life of a monastic he's very very into yoga and and the um the hindu philosophies behind yoga which kind of came from uh krishna consciousness so like that was not a signal to get closer to the mic that was me burping but (laughs) holding my hand over the lavalier mic so that it wouldn't just like rip one in the middle of it so you should have just ripped one so like and i think that's kind of where like some of these bands where they just started compartmentalizing their life. And and I think Tim's right. Like there's still great bands, but it's a fucking vow of poverty. And right now I think if you're going to um be in a band and tour, especially something as limited as straight edge hardcore, like you're gonna be playing shows in front of 30 kids in fucking Lincoln, Nebraska. And you're getting driven 15 hours from some other godforsaken place. <laughs> no, you're not getting driven. You're driving yourself. Yeah. In a, um, fuck, who was, oh, when the when we walked by the Urban Lounge the other night and the vibrators were playing and there's like this, or whatever, I guess we drove yeah. by. Yeah. But, like and there's this really sad van out front. Uh-huh. I was like, "Oh my god, those guys have been around forever." And that's the tour bus right now. Maybe there's only two of them left and it's totally cool, but I don't know. I like I I, I just realized like, man, uh probably saw them at the Paramount with the Moberleys and the Radios and some other, you know, Seattle upstarts. Ah, it sounds like a pretty fucking cool show to me. <laughs> I don't think life in general is at that show. Anyway, um, but uh, you, I, I, yeah, the vow of poverty thing is a. It's like you got to believe pretty fucking strongly in what you believe in, to, um, and and that could be in terms of athletics. It could be music. It could be a philosophical ideal. But the strong, if you have to have a, a really strong belief if you are going to. Um, trade away money or exchange you know some financial well-being or whatever to adhere yeah well the conversation that we had before you hit record about tim's friend who's a lawyer and a you know you have to drink why don't you tell the story so i don't fuck it up (laughs) well i don't know that he has to drink he just made a choice you know to start drinking and that was his choice, but I think he felt, and maybe, you know, my details are, are foggy. It's been several years since we've had the conversation, but he just, you know, felt like he needed to not explain himself to everybody all of the time at these social gatherings, and he just started drinking wine, you know, and that was his gateway. Yeah. I mean, it's, an, it, it, and when you had mentioned that, I, I 
remember a conversation with someone, and I th- and I think it actually happened on a movie job. I think we were uh, it was Man of Steel, and we were and Michael was with me as you know my assistant on that job, and we were in a social situation, and he. And we were in a restaurant and a meal and this and that, and I wrote a martini and somebody else wrote this, that, that, and he goes for water. And I was just like, I looked at him and I, I don't know that words were exchanged the, right at the time, but he got it. He like, oh, yeah, actually give me this. Then the conversation that the follow up conversation was like, look, we are in, involved in this business. This is expected behavior. We already stand out as freaks for what we're doing with fitness and actors and whatever, and the way that we do it and the way that we talk about it, let's just toe certain lines in order to not like trigger any more kind of nervousness on the part of people who are looking at something that is akin to a zoo exhibit in a way. Yeah, and I think guys <laughs> like Tim and I are... St- for that we are the zoo exhibits <laughs> and not in a bad like i didn't mean that like uh, how did i no, you're, mean that it, yeah like it, i guess it's fucking tattooed on my arms so yeah yeah so it's tattooed on a lot of people's arms <laughs> that, that no, true story, that true anymore. story. so <laughs> okay so <laughs> was ink always a part no no i would say i would say you know it's just something that you become more exposed to in that like hardcore community or in the subculture of hardcore you know that was my first real exposure to tattoos like i wasn't exposed to tattoos from bikers or you know like yeah but i still feel like i started getting tattooed before it was really becoming mainstream and you know, it was, so could we put a year when on it when it kind of became mainstream uh, and backtrack from there? I don't know. I would say ninety ninety because oh Whoa, mainstream you, uh, oh mainstream <laughs> not 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 hardcore mainstream because oh yeah probably two thousand and what I'm just going fifteen years ago. Yeah, it well, might I really probably that's pretty accurate you know and especially like when social media blew up like instagram you know yeah nowadays like before to look at tattoos you had to go to a tattoo shop and look through somebody's portfolio book yeah you know and and now with instagram i'm you know I can follow. I, I follow a hundred tattooers yeah you yeah. know and I and really do. like <laughs> You know, and also I think really what drove it probably to become more mainstream are, you know, all the professional sports athletes that are heavily tattooed. Okay. And on TV all the time. Which wasn't the case. Like it It was was never the case. I mean, and it was so like, and this is interesting to me. So if you got a, you know, if you were a part of this third wave or whatever it is that's happening right now in terms of tattooing, um, then it was never a countercultural thing. It was done more as a fashion thing. Like you weren't actually making an anti-establishment statement. Sure. But at a certain time, it's it, it, it seems like it was a cultural identifier that, you know, that got you like pulled out of the, you know, you've been chosen for a random security screening type of thing. Or, sure. Or, you know, you've been, I saw you, you, didn't make a left turn signal when before he made that left turn and the reason when I really pulled you over because I saw your fucking left arm 
and that says to me that you're this, this, and this, or you know right. whatever stereotype existed beforehand. So obviously, if if you're in, we're you know say we're into punk music, hardcore music, we're already a little bit marginalized in a certain era. Oh fuck yeah! <laughs> and then f- further, I don't want to alienating is a bit strong, but moving to an even a, a ring of the circle even further out with. I mean, I look at tattoos, especially with with you, both of you, as okay. This is this is shorthand communication. Yes, in a way, like I'm I am declaring something without having to say it. Or, yeah. I, you know. I I I agree with that. It was like when I first, you know, I started skateboarding in 1986 in Gilbert, and. I met the guy who introduced me to Straight Edge because of my skateboard. And at that time, like if I saw another skateboarder in my town, we were buddies, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, Fucking a, yeah. so that was the identifier, right? Like, so in, the activity was in 1992, in you know, if I saw somebody with an X tattooed on them, I would have asked them, hey, are you Straight Edge? You know, and that would have been the identifier and we would have been buddies. You, you, you know, in, in my scene, we would have been buddies. And where I know? grew up, same exact thing. Like, yeah, we're going to hang out at the same shop because, like, there's this store, Woody's Comic Books. Comic Books, Punk Rock. It's where I first heard the first Minor Threat record, and I was just like, when I hear Out of Step, I was just like, that's what I want to be because I didn't want to be these certain things unlike other people. And it was the same thing. It's like, oh, you know, oh, you ride a skateboard? I ride a skateboard we're friends because guess what there's because it's us against them yeah and there's literally a town of a hundred thousand people there were 20 of us maybe 20 punk rockers and then all the punk rockers they were so nihilistic and that's like you know those guys weren't just doing drugs they were doing whatever the fuck they could get their hands on you know and not just in terms of drugs but also behavior and that sort of thing and it seemed and for, and and it's it's funny because that's that behavior in that era was not you know consistent with, with what I was I liked the music I liked the anti-establishment nature of the culture I liked I was already marginalized because I was into climbing but the but but being there I was just like well I a I didn't know straight edge was a thing but um but but B, I was like, I don't want to hang out with these people who just want to get fucked up on the wheel. I go climbing on the weekend, and and I'm gonna go climbing to the same soundtrack. We're gonna listen to the same bands, but I'm not trying to obliterate my senses, in a way. But I never. But so I'd have to say, that, you know, in, in some sense, climbing kept me honest. Where it feels like. Um, Maybe the, the the culture of straight edge was something that um, inspired or commanded, you know, greater level of honesty, or at least personal examination. I think that's honestly probably what Ian Mackay was probably trying to get at, and it's amazing that guy wrote those songs when. How old do you think he was? Eighteen or nineteen. Like in like he was looking like 
if I strip this bullshit out of my life and don't do these things, then I have time to focus on the things that really matter to me. Like in your case, climbing for him, it was skateboarding. He's, he's actually a good skater. Um, and also to focus on himself and a little deeper introspection. And I think that's where it started. You know, to me, it was as much a way of rebelling against my father, who was a drinker, and some of my friends. Like, oh, well, I'm punk rocker, but you guys are just like those fucking metalheads and those jocks that are fucking drinking Budweiser and driving whatever, and, you know, just being idiots. And there was other things I wanted to do. I wanted to skate. I wanted to ride my BMX bike. And, yeah, you can't do that if you're fucked up or i couldn't <laughs> there are guys who can yeah probably better and jay adams <laughs> <laughs> um do you agree kind of where i went with that tim yeah i agree my story is a, a bit different as to why i decided to label myself straight edge um it was more so that I had never dabbled in drugs or drinking. But before I knew what straight edge was, I felt like as a kid I had maybe an enlightened common sense that if I did, based on who I was at the time, I would have loved it. So I was like, I should probably not dabble because, you know... I guess at the time it was like the height on the war on drugs was happening, you know, like Nancy Reagan was, you know, driving it home and and I latched on and I was like, I should probably not do this. It would be bad. Uh, I would like it and but, it would but but not not bad in a moral sense, but bad because you might dig it too much. Right. Like I had friends that I was skateboarding with that were into punk rock and you know, at 14 and 15 years old, they were already super bad, you know, and I could see it. And they were my buddies, and, you know, the skateboard was the common denominator because I wasn't doing drugs with them, but we still skateboarded, and we were friends, and we went to the same high school. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was kind of that. I What really happened was, I guess when I was introduced to Straight Edge, it was the summer before I started high school, I met a kid named Glenn Bowen who had moved from Chula Vista, like San Diego area, to Gilbert to live with his like brother and sister-in-law. And he was already Straight Edge, had been Straight Edge for a few years. This is the summer of 89. And he was a skateboarder. You know, I saw him skateboarding and we became buddies and and he started showing us these videos of him at you know uniform choice shows youth of today shows and he really explained the idea behind straight edge and i was like you know a 14 15 year old kid who wanted to latch onto something because you know you're really impressionable age and i latched on hard and that became my reason now for not doing it. You know, I could label myself something. Before I was just like, I don't want to because it'll probably mess me up because I'll like it. And then the, the guys who were 
doing it, then you get a reputation as a fraidy cat or uh, fucking yeah. pussy or you know whatever. Like, yeah, like and and as and as um, I think we talked about it, like I don't now I don't have to explain myself. Yeah, I'm just I'm just straight as <laughs> I don't drink. Yeah, you know I'm not gonna do these drugs with you at this party or. Yeah, no, it's actually, and it's funny. At least in my case, like my drinking friends would be like, "Hey." hold my fucking beer for me because they know he wouldn't drink it or whatever and just little things like that where pretty soon they just accept you as that person where there's no longer that like oh you fucking pussy because you don't do this it was the 80s and that's you're, the vernacular so you're not like us yeah and pretty oh, soon okay well i need to be i, I actually I, i'm not and i wasn't looking for people who are like you is actually looking for some people who are more like me <laughs> yeah in a sense and that uh, I, I mean I, I'd have to say in a way you know we, we are all in a living in some kind of bubble at this point in our lives have for a while and it was super easy for me to to like oh this these are I, I want to be in this group of climbers. In fact, I want to be in the, the, the in the group of the climbers who are the best guys. Mm-hmm. What do they look like? How do they dress? How do they behave? How do I fit in? How do I, as a you know social chameleon, looking yeah. and a very ambitious one, looking for a particular outcome, I need to sort of infiltrate this community so that I can become better at this thing that I'm super into, and then whatever I am now is a result of some of those decisions then. And it almost feels like the same path in a way. And not maybe maybe less mercenary, but look, we wanna, I, yeah, I don't wanna have to justify myself all the time, I don't, and nor do I wanna get in these arguments. Yeah. And I wanna do, you know, I guess I wanna do cool shit with people that are also cool. Yeah, and because of the way I ended up identifying myself, it allowed me to do things like, you know, it's fucking 13 years old when I started. Like, I was the youngest person in my band, my first band, because, but I was the only other straight edge kid. So, guess what? I got to play guitar. Like, because no, like, well, this is a small town and we want to play shows and we want to be a youth crew band and um and so yeah we need this straight edge you're straight edge you play guitar you're in and it was really that simple but that because of that opened the door you know yeah that you got to play these shows and you got to you know you're like in high school and yeah you might not be the coolest kid or you know like but like I had like this weird life where I was playing clubs with other bands, and I'm a 13 year old kid, <laughs> and and, it, and it's just like who the fuck like I had this weird like thing where I get to do this thing that no one really knows about, and then I'm back at school and yeah. What'd you do this weekend? Ah, we drove to wherever and yeah, played in this club where they only allow adults to go <laughs> which is kind of 
One, we'll circle back to some of the, you know, because every movement yeah. gets hijacked at some point yes. by people um, and maybe earns the, you know, reputation that is, um, that, that has been purchased or created by the, the most uh, outlandish of the members. I don't know, like, Sean and I were talking earlier, I guess, well, let's do this now because we'll talk about, I want to talk about later the, the effect of straight edge on athletic longevity. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, so if I forget, okay, help bring it back. But so, you know, all, all movements, especially, you know, all cultural movements, you know, maybe not all, but um, it can become powerful mm-hmm. in a way. Power attracts people. Being powerful in a like being a big fish in a small pond attracts people. Yes. Um, if you've got a propensity, so Sean and I we were talking at lunch about um, the difference between like go to a punk, go to a punk or a hardcore show, go up front. You have what amounts to like at the best shows I've ever been to, it was ritualized violence up front. Mm-hmm. And some of the worst shows where I had to leave the pit were when, I mean, especially Seattle punk days, the guys started showing up and taking off their spiked belts, wrapping them around the ankles of their big fucking boots so that when they kicked you, you went home fucking bloody. Like you would get, you would be on the pit floor because you couldn't stand on your fucking leg anymore. So then like when the actual violence started showing up, like I stopped going. It's not interesting. Yes, this, the ritualized version of it in the way that we had physical contact with each other or the shows that I went home were like, I don't know what happened to my shirt, <laughs> you know, or my shoe? left shoe <laughs> that came up once. It's true, you know, or whatever that as an example. Um, but then, you know, hear about these shows where people are actually being hospitalized and other dudes are going to jail and I realized like, okay, this now, this looks different than the, what seemed to be a pretty damn cool intent. Oh. Because, <laughs> and both of us are going to probably have a different take on this. I, I, but there be also whatever, became I'm gonna have, I mean. um, a bit of a gang influence in some of it. Um, and we would refer to them usually as crews. Tim can correct me if his experience is different than mine. Um, there's certain group that Technically, I would never have called myself a member, but they were my friends, and I was definitely associated with these guys. And yeah, you would go to shows with these guys, and if it was just a regular hardcore show that was not a strictly straight-edge hardcore show, drinking and stuff was tolerated. However... Um, By others. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. These guys would just kind of ignore the people drinking. However, these same guys, if you went to, say, I don't know, an Earth Crisis show, um, and they saw someone drinking or holding a drink in the pit, the least that was going to happen is the drinks can get slapped out of their hand. The worst that was going to happen is they're going to go to the hospital. Did you have similar... I don't know. Like I think sometimes, like, this is my take in the kind of I'm going to say Salt Lake 
through the Midwest, I think we got carried away. Like, I think on the coast, people were more reasonable. (laughs) Buffalo might be, and Syracuse might be the exception of that. But it's like, we almost, like, got this weird gang mentality that, and I think we went wrong, like a lot of us. A lot of my friends did some really shitty things to people for what I think is just a stupid lifestyle choice. A philosophical difference. Yeah. I mean, people have wars over shit like that, but... Yeah, but this is fucking... Generally, there's a little bit of religious influence with that kind of thing, (laughs) so... Yeah, and I don't know. Did you... You probably witnessed some of this shit, but maybe... Yeah, I certainly witnessed it. Uh, You know, growing up in the suburbs of Phoenix, it was more so like when I first started going to shows, it wasn't... You know, I was... It wasn't like us versus the drinkers or anything like that. It was us versus the Nazis. You know, and like they were the guys that were coming just, you know, solely to pick fights. They would stand in the middle of the pit, and if you were too close, you would get hit. Yeah. You know, and it terrified me. You know, I was this little kid going to the Silver Dollar Club in downtown Phoenix, and... You know, that was frightening. But, you know, as I aged and, you know, would hear horror stories of, like, crew violence and different scenes and, you know, it was kind of all word of mouth, really kind of like pre-internet, so who knew if it was true, if it was unprovoked or provoked, you know. There are sometimes two sides to the story. Sure, (laughs) and, and, you know. At least. Yeah. News, you know, this was when like the news was latching onto it. Like the papers were writing articles on straight edge and the violence of straight edge. Like you would think this straight edge kid is your parents' dream come true, but wait again, it's a gang. You know, like that's funny. I think I read that exact article recently, you know, know, (laughs) about the Salt Lake scene about, oh, this is Marvin and he's or whatever. Guy, you know, he would have changed his name if he was straight edge, but yeah, um, the. But but almost that exact quote, like this is, yeah, doesn't drink, doesn't do drugs, just happens to be in jail right now. <laughs> right, right. Because, you know, you know, aggravated assault or, yeah. or whatever. And, and that, to me, it took, it took a lot of power out of the whole philosophy in a way. Sure. Was that physical, you know, that, all right, now this guy's going to, you know, one of these Stories and it's and and again I got I have to say story because it's yeah I've heard a couple different you know or I've heard the same version from a couple different people the Salt Lake thing whatever there's a show there's a fight somebody goes to the hospital um, you know with a fractured orbit and then is blind in one eye for the rest of his life I I just wanted to go see some music. I know that I should wear safety glasses when I go see certain bands or, you know, whatever. Something like, I've never done at a show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like, okay, and I would agree with Sean. Okay, this seems that, that and to read about, you know, you know these, these archived newspaper articles about the, the straight edge scene in Salt Lake in the late 90s. I'm like, holy, this is, that's a little bit, you know, different than, the, the, you know, the, the punk scene that I was exposed to. And, you know, maybe I'm a 
fucking naive child, but uh, like, okay, that's that is, you know, one hit over the line, so to speak. Yeah, and I think Salt Lake was like the perfect storm for any of that shit to happen. And I remember playing Salt Lake too, and it people went fucking nuts. So like, it's. But you have, if you're relate, I mean, raised you, you, with this Mormon thing. I was going to say, you combine, you know, yeah. s- semi-hardcore religious repression with, uh, you know, when the pressure cooker finally goes off, the pendulum doesn't stop in the middle. No. And, you know, and we can ask, he'd be a great interview as our friend Mike. Um, yeah, he, stories that dude could tell you about salt lake is probably back when he was in like a strife at one point like i'm sure some of that shit was just you know i would think i would bet though it was you know it was more mellow then you know you think i think it probably didn't really take off until like 96 or 97 yeah that's and and i went through salt lake for the first time in 97 with a band and that's when I started becoming friends with those guys. You know, I'd met them and, yeah. you know, I was straight edge. They were straight edge. I was cool. They were cool. Um, but yeah, we heard the like violence horror stories and, you know, the people that I'm still in contact with in Salt Lake that are still straight edge, you know, and I've got their accounts for it. And, you know, their opinion was it was, it was provoked, provoked violence, you know, and, you know, they sure, probably sure. they probably I, I, have a very I, short fuse, and and you know more, did so more so then than they do now. They're you know certainly more relaxed with age, but I was never like tough enough to beat people up. So, and I never really wanted to. You know. Yeah. But, yeah, it's an inter- you know I would I would argue that some of those guys have maybe gotten a little less um, tolerant, but that's just a sort of recent experience that uh it was yeah it, it but whatever you know we've we have all um you know been around, like watched the fucking beat down happen and then realized like oh we're all kind of i don't know about you sean you were a little bigger once not really <laughs> not really <laughs> but, just shorter okay but just i can't really get involved like, hey, I don't know what happened. That guy's getting the shit kicked out of him. Maybe, you know, like 10 of us could do something or whatever. But I had a pretty good knack for spotting the guys in the crowd that were going to get beat up. Okay. Yeah. And, and and it was because they were dicks. Yeah. Okay. You, you, could, you could spot them, you know, like in the pit, you know, there's moshing, there's dancing. And then there's, you know, like. There's the dick. There's the dick. And the dicks in my scene were usually jocks. Okay. You know, and they stuck out like a sore thumb. Jocks are Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you're like, well, that's going to be the fight tonight right there. And it was, you know, 85% of the time I was picking the winner. And, you know, I don't know. But actually what you just said, it's actually true. It's like these people, and sometimes there's, and what sucks is some of these people like, oh, I'm here for a good time, and then these guys, and they'd always blame somebody's crew or whatever. Yeah. And, and these guys, 
but they were always acting out they weren't being respectful and guess what there are some hard hard like tim and i yeah 150 pound bike racers not really the tough guys nobody's looking at you and going i'm gonna get out of that guy's yeah. way when he comes in but right, like, right. But <laughs> like that guy at the that we called sasquatch at the sick of it all show the fucking yeti like it would have been a guy like that see he would have policed it like at least in, especially in colorado there's a few dudes that were just big dudes knew they were tough didn't normally have to prove it to someone but if someone acted out they were in a fucking beat down and because they and weren't playing by the these tribal rules that no one fucking knows yeah and, unless you're and, in and i'm not against a you know culture of consequence okay um because yeah and maybe the rules are unspoken or whatever but mm -hmm. but I'm but I am also into a you know a culture of like being fucking self-aware and sensitive to your surroundings and don't be that dude cuz cuz then the yeti's going to he is going tune to you up squash you. <laughs> I, I was always really good also at being self-aware of my surroundings yeah and it's and survival like, if i was in the front of the pit and i got hit in the face you know, it's almost that you come to expect it, you know? This it, actually it, came up earlier where we were talking and said, yeah, you get an elbow to the face in the good pit. It's not, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional. And usually, you know, in the good pit, the dude would apologize, you know, and that was that, you know, I might go home with a black eye, but it was unintentional. I was up front, you know, in this environment that I put myself in. And knew the risk but it's the people that aren't i wouldn't say you know everybody deserves to go to these shows you know but it was the jock guys that were in front that didn't know it wasn't intentional or unintentional rather you know and then they start hitting you back yeah and then it becomes intentional and then it becomes a fight you know but maybe that's what they're there for, you know. It's they're there looking hey, for that. Many people are it, like put in front of us to test us. It's true. <laughs> no, no. And what are you saying? I remember like late '80s, early '90s when the skinhead movement was kind of happening, and those fucking guys would show up to hardcore shows, and it would be yeah, they were the ones wanting. They were looking to kick the shit out of some little punk rock kid or whomever else they could and yeah there were some crazy violent shows and like where riots would break out into the street after the show and sometimes unexpected shows like social distortion 1989 90 playing with the screaming trees there was a riot outside of the show. It's, it's like, like Mark Lanigan fans versus Mike Ness fans, or what are we talking about like, here? It, it was like, like literally <laughs> skinheads were running around beating up punk rockers. The cops showed up, starting beating up skinheads and punk rockers. And my friend Johnny, who's a big man, um, he was in my band, and he just pinned me against the wall and just like, stay here. And like, because I would have got fucking killed. <laughs> it was so. It was insane. So this sounds like you know, 
several great shows I've been to, but, <laughs> but that and that, that had that us versus them overtone because like the you know x you know this group of people showed up because they knew that hey if we go there we can actually fight and it'll be good it'll be yeah. okay we're not going to get you know a we're going to come out on top b you know no one's going to jail or whatever yeah you know, blah 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 um and, and that seems almost to have like little to do like the the the, the violence is an exponent of straight edge ideals doesn't it's to me it's not consistent with the in, in a way, except for, say, in the beginning, like, okay, we're drawing this line in the sand. We're not crossing it. If you cross the line and try and drag us across it, then, you know, we're going to sort of fight to preserve our cultural ideal, let's say. Um, so maybe it's an outgrowth of that, but it seemed to, it seems to take the focus or shift the focus to you know, what I got stuck in is like, okay, there's this bullshit violence, you know, fighting aspect of it. And, and that is not necessarily consistent with, okay, why I made this choice in the first place? How did I, how you, you know, chose to conduct your life because it would be a better way to live for you as an individual. I agree. Like the violence should have never been a part of it. it but i think once you start separating yourself out from other people people for some reason and representatives of the people from whom you have separated they come along and then you need to sort of reassert your value line in the sand yeah, yeah. and you do you agree with that kind of tim like i don't think it ever really should have had a place it just kind of happened Maybe I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm it was it was happening before Straight Edge. You know, it was happening in the punk rock scene before sure. yeah. Straight Edge existed. You know, I would think just in that environment of aggressive music, yeah, yeah, and a variety of fans. You know, there's going to be aggression, and you know, that was the way to get your aggression out though right was was to express it there yeah in a you know so that you could do it in a controlled environment in maybe a, way, a controlled right? environment right yeah and you know you work your job and on the weekend you go to a punk rock show and see bands play and thrash around and get out your teen angst and yeah you know i'm good with that a hundred percent i was i was never <laughs> i was never violent within my you know scene yeah i never went to jail because i was straight edge you know certainly people have you know but yeah yeah it's just i mean so let, let me back off the to the topic of hardcore for a second yeah because before hardcore for me i had my father lived in southern California, and I would, well, I guess kind of northern Salinas area. I would take my like high school or my junior high school, junior high school rather, summer vacations, and I would go stay with him for a month. That was like the one time a year I would see him. And he was really into new wave music and, and punk rock. So, man, I wonder if you know my niece. <laughs> 
So he was my first exposure to like new wave. And when I say that, I mean like the Smiths and the Cure. And, okay. And I was listening to that with him. And I would leave. Sad wave. Sad wave. <laughs> and it was, perf- I mean, <laughs> it was perfect for me because oh, yeah. when I was 13 and 14, I was just this like little depressed skate kid, you know. And those songs were speaking to me, oh, you know, directly to me. Yeah. It was like, how did you know me when you wrote this it, song? Exactly. You know? Yeah. So what I'm leading up to, though, is I have seen just as many gnarly fights at Morrissey shows as I have at hardcore shows. <laughs> that is so awesome, dude. Because I am a super Smith Morrissey nerd. Mm-hmm. And if you see Morrissey in L.A., the fan base is, I don't know if I can put a percentage on it, but... Now they're it's, all my age, but... You know, it's, it's let's say, 75% Mexicans. And they go off at Ma shows. And no shit. Oh, fuck yeah. The, the, but, oh, like, but, <laughs> but it's mostly girl fights. It is insane. Okay. Pulling hair. That's a level of savagery I am not so, able to. <laughs> <laughs> so just to take the pressure off a little bit of the hardcore yeah. scene and the hardcore violence, you know, there's savage Morrissey fans out there. <laughs> yes. As I'm sure, although, you know, back in the day when Cheap Trick was playing, you know, they would generally play an arena where there wasn't really a hit per se. So, you know. Didn't see a lot of fights, you know, kind of joking there. But, um, yeah, prog rock shows people are all fucking <laughs> stoned, so there are no fights. <laughs> <laughs> I, but but the, the, the that, that's a, I mean, let's just say that, you know, young, depressed, searching for identity, uh, find a group, identify, you know, express and defend the group thing i it seems ultimately totally natural you know in a way regardless of the style of music and so and that to me is one of the things like oh hardcore music gets you know gets the rap like the let's just say okay the straight edge scene gets the violence rap because that's where the focus is when in reality this could actually be um in terms of you know, one's physical existence, the better choice. I mean, yeah, there are straight edge kids who eat too much fucking sugar and end up diabetic and, you know, yeah. and have to sacrifice a toe, foot, you know, leg, whatever. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But, but at, at some point they become non-ambulatory, so they're not an issue. Yeah. You know, but the, but it does seem like, I mean, I'm all, you know, if people listen to the podcast. I don't, you know, care what you do as long as you say what you do. Yeah. Um, but this making choices to of you know not imbibe substances that will permanently alter your physical makeup is a seems like a pretty strong choice and a good one. And if, you know, John Joseph, yeah, who's saying, you know, having the discussion there with uh, 
Rogan, Mr. Mr. Rogan, um, but about identifying like, look, this is not a, you know, now we're splitting hairs. We're all eating food. Everybody's yeah. eating and shitting. Yeah, you're just eating something different than I'm eating. You may you make a choice, Sean. You know, in particular, it's it's a it's a not only a health choice but a philosophical choice. Um, but the real issue is to fast food places. The real issue is the easy and cheap access to bad food. That mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing that should be being talked about, not whether you know somebody's. Are you do you do dairy? Yeah. Well, like, how could you not do dairy? Don't you love cows? Or goats? How do you feel about goats? They have cloven hooves. But are they a cloven hoof shark? Uh, no, there is only one cloven hoof shark, yeah. cloven hoofed shark in my recent experience. Yes. But uh, like, I, I think we get. <laughs> Sorry, inside joke, Tim. Anyway, you'll meet, right. you will meet Vince one day, and you'll you'll understand all all of it. <laughs> um, the but but this idea of like okay the. Here's the, the the this you know bullshit social identifier for a particular you know ideal or philosophy yeah. that happens to be okay. It's a it's these bands, it's this music, it's this behavior. But the initial choice to me seems like you know I I, I couldn't have, but sometimes I look at it and go wow, that might have been a better choice for me. No, I think it is like you look at some of these guys who've maintained this lifestyle for a long period of time and what they their health and well-being and what they look like today compared to um other people who've made different choices and you see how much Let's, damage it has done to them. Let's just say a straight edge reunion show yes. versus a sad wave reunion show, two different animals. Yeah, well, <laughs> didn't you see Fields um, yes. when you're in England? And how did that look? Great. Oh, he looked good? Yeah. Awesome. Cool, yeah. Because I wasn't sure. I was yeah. Like, oh. McCoy looked great. And um, I saw you know New Model Army in London two times. Those guys look great. Yeah. You know, Justin went through some health thing, I think, because there was a period when he was not, you know, had made some choices, came back, swung back, realized, like, the power that he has to sort of influence social change. Yeah. Um, and, like, okay, now he's he's someone whose physical appearance and behavior is still consistent with the ideals in the music. Perfect. And, and that is, yeah, it's one of those kind of funny things where, and I've joked about it before, is like, hey, when the buttons are popping on your suit, you don't get to sing head like a hole anymore. Yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) and I think that's totally true. He's like, like one of mine and Tim's favorite bands, Youth of Today, right? Yeah, yeah. Great band. You look at those dudes that were in that band and they still live that lifestyle in whatever you think of their religions, neither here nor there. But those guys are fit they look capable when they play they they only do a couple reunion shows every now and again they're like the years have been kind to them because of their choices and if and their career is longer than mr resner's and mr resner the years have not been so kind to him and i think that's because of the choices they make and he makes and i think that's the beauty of this 
I hate calling it a movement, but this sect of society, is it allows you, if you strip some of this other shit away, it allows you to start exploring other parts of your personality, whether it be physicality, whether it be spiritual belief, whether it be philosophical belief. But your, I mean, your body is the vessel which carries your brain through these, you know, physical experiences that we can have relating to the world. And, you know, looking after it, you know, certainly better than I have <laughs> with mine. Yeah. Like, I, I was thinking about a little bit today, riding uh-huh. in this, you know, race slash non-race or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> it um, felt like a race. It, it, no, it did. It did. Because we all tried really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but just, th- and, and thinking later in the, and when Sean and I were talking a little bit about straight edge, and I thought, this is a thing where it, you said recently, this, this very afternoon, Sean, I am nowhere near my physical potential. And yes, maybe you're referring to a level of fitness that you had this year, yeah. earlier this year, or maybe last year or whatever. So yeah. that's a very specific situation. But let's look at that globally and go, wow, to be age 43, four, four. Yeah. Um, and to have that in your head is like that I still have this vast um, open-ended sort of thing. Yeah. In, that that relates to my physical potential, especially when it's you know comes to racing your bike. At that age, tons of motherfuckers gave up at thirty. Yeah, and and quit. And yeah, again in a bubble, etc. And I think same thing, Tim, for you that that yeah, a little bit of structured training added into what has already been you know a lot of really good outcomes achieved. You know by doing what you want or feels right on the day or whatever, like it's open for another decade or 15 years or 20 years at least. Yeah. I have, I have friends that will whoop me up on a bike and they're in their fifties, you know? So those guys are my inspiration to like, you know, we're all amateurs. I've never been a pro cyclist. You know, this is a hobby. Yeah. But, it is I spent I spent a lot of money, you know, doing this. Nobody's ever paid me to do this, but you know, I don't know if like becoming fat is in my genetics, but I'm trying to avoid it. Tough, call. you know. Tough. It'd be, it'd be really. I feel tough. like I feel like, <laughs> but he could get that weird diabetic belly that just sticks out. I feel like I'm. It's like a base basketball. Yeah, that one. That one. <laughs> Sorry, is that diabetic or is that beer? I think it's diabetic. Okay. We actually had this conversation recently where um, Keegan, who weighs 260 now, and Joe weighs 130. Okay. Or, well, Joe's a little heavy right now. He's yes. around 140. But, um, but we said, okay, meet in the middle. Who can get to 200 first? <coughs> I was like, nice. Joe, you'll never fucking get there. It's going to take Keegan a long time. He's a big man. Yeah. But, but Joe, it. it's impossible for you. <laughs> anyway, so Tim, you're not going to get fat, but the fact that you can, you know, I think, you know, physically express yourself at the level that you do. I'm going to just try and, you know, I'm just going to make the leap. That might be tied to some philosophical choices about, let's just say, substance abuse. Sure. I totally agree, 100%. And the fact that, you know, with a straight-edge choice that maybe some food awareness choices came with it. 
it was definitely my exposure to you know ruling you know I was straight edge before I became a vegetarian and it was it was youth of today you know the song no more that you know got my head spinning about you know what's going on in this industry and then I read a book called A Diet for a New America by okay. John Robbins and that sealed the deal you know and I've been meat free for 25 years okay you know I think straight edge for 28 so it uh so choices made 25 years ago Um, still feel uh, the only word I can come up with is is valid today totally relevant in my life today yeah it's fucking cool yeah and I'm the guy who tried like a vegetarian long time went tried to eat meat for a while because I thought I needed this I needed this Sounds like you were hanging out with that dude who ate burgers all the time. I kind of was. That we all wanted to be because yeah. he was so cool. And then I discovered, like, I felt so much fucking guilt for this because, like Tim, I read the same books. Okay. And I felt the same way. And But I was like, but I need this because I'm going to be I'm a real athlete now, not just fucking around on BMX and mountain bikes and going to, you know, and... And I kind of have a physical job, and I'm like, I need this. And then I discovered, I was like, I feel so mentally shitty about it. And I was no matter how good you may have felt, may or may not have felt physically. Let's just let's just hypothesize that you felt better physically, recovered faster. You know, put on some lean mass, got up to a you know whopping 153. Yeah. Um. You know, whatever. Uh, like no, whatever potential positive feedback you may have had physically was far outweighed by the psychological weight. Every that, time I ate something, I had guilt. <laughs> Straight like something like that. And I was just like and I and I had like a kind of shitty situation that happened and I was just like fuck it, I'm done. Whatever happens to my quote-unquote athletic hobby career, whatever you want to call. Willing to make the trade. Yeah, I was like, I didn't give a shit. I don't want to feel like this. I don't want my choices to impact other things so negatively. Like, I don't want to create anyone else's suffering or anything else's suffering. So, I... He drew up in your... <laughs> I can't even fuck with you on that. That is... Too, that is mm-hmm. I, yes, I, I, I fucking killed a million bugs on my way here. <laughs> And a fucking car burning gasoline. Yes, I know I'm a hypocrite. Well, we all are, right? But but and and I apologize for bringing levity into that because that was a very intense and uh, maybe one of the best explanations I've ever. Not that people need to explain or justify or whatever, but yeah, but I I don't mind uh, explaining it. You know, I all if you want to argue, if people want to argue other bits, like. It'd be fun to do, but I don't really care about it. Yeah. Like, it, to me, it's personal. 
Yeah. And it's just, it's how you are and it's integrated and, yeah. and you're not proselytizing. And that's the, and, and I think it, certainly in the business that I've been in, it's the, the issues for me generally with, you know, I'll just say the, you know, the vegetarian argument is that it has been an argument. Like, dude, I don't care. Like, you don't need to, it's the proselytizing. It's, it's the, it's like, I'm, I, I love the fact that people can run in, shoes that look like feet. <laughs> I just don't love those people generally when they try to convert others who didn't naturally or organically find their way there. I think that's fair. And I think that's even the straight edge thing. Like all the guys who, you know, there's this thing in straight edge called breaking edge. The guys who talks the most shit about someone breaking edge. Oh, the guys that broke their edge first. Yeah. All and, of them. And, from my experience, it was the guys that were all like the, the most militant, you know, in my opinion, always fell the hardest. Oh, yeah. You know, it was like maybe I'm still straight edge now because I was a lot more tolerant of others, you know, and, you know, it's that saying you become what you hate. And a lot of people, you know, that I saw that were super super into it and militant about it are you know no longer straight edge and recovering alcoholics or alcoholics or died from heroin or what have you like i said the pendulum doesn't stop in the middle yeah i mean eventually it does because you die but uh, <laughs> but you know while you're alive it seems to be you know traveling across it that that whole militant falls the hardest thing is I think maybe not untrue it reminds me of I don't know certain Republican politicians that get caught in gauging in behavior which they is not consistent with their you know stated stated beliefs yeah <laughs> there are the Ted Haggards of the world the poor guy in Idaho with the wide stance <laughs> jeez dude I don't care what you put in you or whatever yeah, it's just don't jump up and down about the opposite when and that's that's honestly always been my where I tried to approach it and I'm not saying I've always had a very enlightened thing you know about any of this shit but I try to think about like that I don't really care what you do, <clears throat> pardon me, but what I've chose to do is my personal choice and it's your personal choice and I want to defend your freedom to make your, what I might view as a shitty choice, but I'm going to defend your ability to do that. It's, it's hard not to see some of the things like as, as a shitty choice oh. because we're judgmental by nature when it actually it's just, okay, it's a, it's a valid choice, it's a different choice. I think at a certain, you know, at a, let's just say a younger age, uh -huh. I would be more inclined to characterize a different choice as shitty. Oh, yeah. Whereas now, it's like, oh, it's just different. Yeah. Right. And I'm pretty good with different. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and let me back that up, because what Tim said was actually true. It seemed like a lot of the guys, like he said, m more militant. They just couldn't be like someone who has a glass of wine with a meal or drink before they go to bed. These guys all became 
like drinkers. Oh yeah. But I think it's that goes back a little bit to what Tim was talking about of like I I I never dabbled, and then I found a reason sort of not to because I mean I'll just go out here and just say look we're we are all addicts. The choices that we made about things to which we you know allowed ourselves to become addicted mm-hmm. were less personally destructive yeah. than some others. And so, and I think that the, the militant thing, the guy that, you know, the, the loudest, you know, homophobe in the room, it fucking loves a taste of cock. <laughs> well, like, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Back to the gutter. But, but, and that's, okay, that's an easy sort of, yeah, you know, topic there. But I, but I think that militancy is okay. When you have a true believer, that's a very, you know, that's a that's a dangerous situation. But I think the that much of the what I would consider, you know, foe or performance militancy mm-hmm. is disguising something else. Like the louder I shout this, the more I believe it, the more people believe it about me. Then the less likely I am to you know, to be who is really inside trying to get out in some way. So if some guys broke their edge and, you know, died of a heroin overdose, well, there you go. The That drug addict was always there, but had been suppressed by a non-drug choice in a way for as long as it was sustainable. But it was a fight the entire time for that guy. Sure. And he shared that. Yeah, and I saw I was seeing the other thing too of the guys who were ex drug addicts who eventually decided they would become straight edge, blah blah blah, weren't gonna do anything. Those are some of the most militant asses I've ever met. Did you ever know any of those type of guys? I knew a few, yeah. Yeah, and some of them weren't very nice people. No. But it's the way it goes. <laughs> Tim, how did you start how did you go from skating to riding? Bicycles? Yeah. So bike riding actually happened for me before skateboarding. I started racing BMX uh, in 1984. Okay, but you also have the BMX thing in concert, Sean, with or in 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 uh, with Keegan in common. He's he's a stationary cyclist. That's different. But with it's like a triathlon guy. Um, no, he's a gigantic 260-pound person who does not yet own a bike. Okay. But um, Joe Holmes and uh, I guess it's really Joe, you know, because yeah. he's 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 uh, seeking to you know convert everyone to become cyclists. But anyways, <laughs> uh, Keegan will eventually had have a. Um, he's a guy who used to be a, you know his prior military he was powerlifter for a long time. Big dude. Uh, I think he was probably close to 300 when I first met him. He's down in the 260s now, but for the last month, he's been getting, he's got this, we have a couple Concept 2 bikes in our space, and uh, and he was just doing a 1,000 calories every day, which, you know, started out pretty, you know, like 56 minutes, and then he got it down to pretty low, and then he's like, on day 30, he's really gonna fucking go for it. So he, um, day 30 of the 30-day, you know, challenge that he'd given himself was to do 100,000 uh, meters. On a stationary bike. 
Wow. He said, yeah, we had, I had the roll-up door open, but every time I looked outside, it was just better to look back at the floor of the gym while I was pedaling, <laughs> especially like after 40 miles. <laughs> he was explaining the thing to me. Anyway, um, no, but there's a there's another guy, you know, oh, Rochester, New York. Yes, hardcore, I know who we're talking about and, now. Sorry. And that, that, you know, sort of came out of BMX and did some show yeah. promotions and this and that. And um, I'm, yeah. I forgot about that. Guy. <laughs> anyway, so 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 BMX is a kid, Tim. Yeah, BMX is like, a kid. My my stepdad, who you know has been involved in my life since three years old. So my dad, um, I think on a whim, he just came to me and my older brother and was like, "Hey, do you guys want to race bikes?" And there was a track pretty close, so we were like, "Yeah, sounds cool." And he got us hooked up, and I raced competitively on. You know, BMX racing from about 84 to 91. Okay. Skateboarding jumped in there. And then... Those two are actually really compatible, it seems. I was I was doing, you know, racing on the weekends a lot, skateboarding all the time. And then uh, I think 1990 on a high school field trip to the Arizona Snowball in Flagstaff, I went snowboarding for the first time. And that took over my life. You know, it tough for Phoenix. Yeah, tough for Phoenix. So as soon as I graduated high school, I left Arizona. I moved to Big Bear Lake, Southern California. It's like right at the beginning of the birth of snowboarding parks. Okay. You know, because Southern California is not known for their epic terrain or, you know, (laughs) copious amounts of snowfall, but they had the, you know, the first and best snowboard parks. And I was young, and I had a buddy who his dad owned a house in Big Bear that was mortgage-free and unoccupied, and he was psyched that we would go live there for the winter. And I, for, for, for three winters, I did not work. I bought a season pass, and we just hustled, you know, to get food and made friends with all local kids and their parents were like our second parents and fed us and we would go to the Calvary Chapel Church on Wednesdays and Sundays because they had potlucks and that was a way to feed ourselves. So figuring it out. So snowboarding took over in support of physical pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, adrenaline sport, I was I was super into it. After Big Bear I went back to Arizona for a couple seasons. And again, found myself every single weekend at Arizona Snowball the entire season. Like I didn't miss a weekend. I was the weekend warrior. Yeah. I was at Arizona Snowball every weekend, driving my 1963 Volkswagen Bug from Gilbert to Flagstaff but every they, weekend. They do all right. In the, well, I guess there'd probably be no snow on the way. <laughs> Not much, <laughs> like, you know, but really they do pretty pretty well. Yeah. It is rear wheel drive, but they had independent rear suspension. You know, I would chain it up and felt like a champ. Yeah. And a little bit of weight over the rear wheels. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a little bit. You know, 40 horsepower engines, not a lot of weight. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as soon as I could escape Arizona, um, I did. And that led me to Park City, Utah, where I had spent the last 17 years until a year ago, uh, you know, just pursuing snowboarding and how to live a life, you know, as a non-pro snowboarder and snowboard every day. And really, to answer your question, biking 
mountain biking was something I could do in Park City when the snow was gone. Yeah. And and seven, 17 years ago would have been a little tougher, but in the last certainly 10 years, the infrastructure for mountain biking in Park City. It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. 450 to maybe 500 miles of single track trails now in, in the Park City oh area. Oh, my God. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, so mountain biking took off. What really set it off was I was still mountain biking and skateboarding, you know, and at first I was still skateboarding more while my roommates were like heavily into mountain biking. Okay. And they were like, come ride. And I'm like, I want to go skate. So I'd go skateboard. And then I did a cyclocross race. And that was it. Like I was like, like on a whim. Kind of on a whim. I had, you know, I had seen, I had seen some people that I knew, you know, had kind of hyped it up to me. And I was like, I'll check this out. It looks pretty cool. And I did it and I loved it. And that was really now the motivation to get better and faster and stronger at cycling. And how, how do I do that? So that's when I started mountain biking more. The mountain biking skills really helped with cyclocross. And then I started road riding a bunch. And that brought the fitness way up. Yeah, just watching you handle your bike on some of the single track we've ridden together. I'm like, okay, there's what's missing. I don't think I'm too old to learn this. Uh, shit. Anyway, I, for me, uh, like the very, uh, probably... I, gotta, I can only go with my memory, and sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not. But um, the first time that I met you, I think it was a Wednesday Night Worlds situation, leaving from the uh, Jeremy Ranch School. Yeah. There have been a bunch of big rig guys there. Um, might have been that, or it might have been... A, it, whatever ride it was, you showed up, there was Team Kid, and you know, um, a, not a small number of tattoos visible in the... Um, arms and you know parts of arms and legs that were exposed and then you had the speaker in your jersey pocket I did today and some kind of music <laughs> player and that was it I remember and I just like every now and then I'd get close and I'd hear it and I'm like who the fuck is this because this is this guy's got great taste in fucking music. Who this, is this person? This is the bad brains playing. I feel like I feel like the bad brains was our common denominator outside of outside of the bike. It it may you know well have and, been. Yeah. And, and that led to like the stories of you in Seattle and being in bands with Duff McKagan and there was a band, a band, one, one band, this one band. The, the Duff, yes, the, the Duff was actually I think. Uh, not on the podcast, but um, Randy Bly asked me about that. He goes, he was. Ta we were talking about something, and he asked me, "Do you know? Oh, Seattle. Oh, this era. Oh, do you know Duff?" I'm like, well, I knew at one point because we were in high school. I think I was a senior. He was a sophomore, maybe. Whatever. It kind of explained uh -huh. the situation. He goes, "Oh my God, I'm totally gonna bring this up next time I see him," because there's another guy who, you know, th there's the guy who went, you know, let's just say another addict who went down the road where you know all glam rock leads apparently to, right <laughs> to you know saying that drinking a case of wine a day was backing off oh my god 
Yeah, so when he had his sort of big health scare and then, you know, flipped it, martial arts, mountain biking, mountain bike racing. And that's, and that, look at him now, he goes, yeah, the miles are there, but I can see it slowly being overwritten by this physical activity and the demands of it and living a lifestyle that will actually allow it to happen. So, which is super fucking cool. But, you know, to go back to, it, circle back maybe just to the athletic longevity piece, yeah. um, a little bit is, like what, seeing how physical the guys from Sick of It All were on stage. Yeah. Was and actually the you know the I I'm a shitty hardcore fan, but yeah. I had never listened to their music until I watched on YouTube either the full or excerpts of a documentary about them. And this is some years ago. Yeah. And one of the guys was talking about, "Hey, the reason that we are, you know, we go to the gym all the time. The reason we're engaged in these physical fitness activities is so that we can keep playing the way that we have always played. They do a really good job at it. They do indeed. And I just thought, wow, here's someone who's, here's some guys who are using fit, you know, this, you know, fitness, whatever, journey, addiction, yeah. behavior for an outside purpose. Which to me, it's like the whole thing for me was like, leave the fucking gym, take it outside, use it for something, you know, different yeah. than the gym itself. And I thought, oh, they, these guys fucking get it. Yeah. And the, the fact that. I think that doc came out in like late 90s. <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> I probably discovered it myself in like 2014 or something, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> Like, oh, late to the show, are you guys still playing? <laughs> oh, it turns out you are because you've looked after yourselves and like yeah. you'd still actually d yeah. do um, d d do this this activity. And, and I don't know, Tim, it seems like to me as far as like the, the, the writing goes that um, despite your advanced age. Sean's older. <laughs> you're older oh, uh, yeah <laughs> I, I have to make a joke but but like that you have only improved i think so since, since we met i think so yeah and i don't do a lot of road racing you know it's not really my cup of tea i i, I really enjoy road riding mm -hmm. um but you know it's all f you know it's still all for cyclocross yeah. i i you know, the fall cross is here and, and I'm so fired up to start racing cross and the Do next, the next week. And okay. Just in a, in a bike race, like in a very bike centric way, do you travel to some places sometimes where the cross is like cyclocross origin type cyclocross, like IE where it's wet and muddy? No, you okay. know, and, and, and really like, again, it's a hobby. I don't. Okay. I, I work at yeah. a bike shop three days a week. I don't have a yeah. lot of money. All the money I have is like, you know, paying a mortgage, you know, raising a kid, buying bikes. And <laughs> if I didn't have and bike, vinyl, what's that? And vinyl. Yeah, record. yeah. A little. You bit. know, I yeah, right. I, I, you know, I still haven't stopped collecting records since the late '80s, and it would be super cool at some point to go through both of your guys record they're collection. all they're all here well the majority of my records are here okay. i still have you know a few in in park city but it was one of those things like 
even though, you know, I live in a tiny house here and I have a three-year-old, so I can't really have them out on display in fear of them getting yes. annihilated. Uh, <laughs> I still have to have them nearby. I got a record in the mail today that I ordered from a band in Boston, you know? What band? A band called Fiddlehead. It is almost like a post-punk hardcore band, kind of melodic. Uh, the singer is, his name's Patrick Flynn, if I'm not mistaken. He he played in a more current, modern, Boston, straight-edge hardcore band okay. called Half Heart, you know? So he's keeping the flame alive. and Nice. I, I, I was introduced to this band on Instagram, you know? This guy in, in Southern California that I follow, that I used to work for when I lived out there, I saw a, a blurp of a show at Program Skate and Sound. You know, they played at a skateboard shop that does shows, does shows at yeah. night. And the song they played, I heard it and I was like, this is amazing. The crowd reaction was awesome. Everybody was there for the band. There was, you know, no violence at all. And then I, I got a hold of it. I sat down with it. I read the lyrics and I cried. Like the emotion was so heavy that I felt like it was the first hardcore record I'd ever heard. And it was just like, the song is a song called uh, Lay Low. And it's kind of about like, you know, how fast time flies you know, you're you're old before you know it. You have a kid before you know it. And I'm like, well, this is my life, you know. <laughs> and it made me reminisce about all my friends and you know, time shared with them. And that's like it, the like all the very best music, not all, but the, like the very best music does. Yeah, I and mean, it's it's transportation. Yeah, it was like time travel. We get to time travel. It was amazing. I, you know, one thing that um, Sean has brought up a few times, and this is for, this is one of those important things that I f feel pretty strongly about. Um, whenever Sean comes to Salt Lake, you know, part of paying the cultural tax of visiting Salt Lake is going to Ranch Records. Yeah. You yeah. know, and buying the, the the album directly from the band. You know, after we went to the Lillington show, yeah. you know, there's a bunch of the the, the the other bands that no one has ever heard of that the, yeah. that Cody participates in, yeah. um, that you can't find in any other way than to go on their website and buy the CD that they still you know they have or vinyl or yeah. you know whatever. Um, but if I go down the vinyl road, that's like that's my straight edge choice. I can't I can't <laughs> go back to collecting records. It'll just be it'll. I'll be that homeless guy with like five shopping carts full of fucking <laughs> the best records like, under the bridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Party at Mark's tent, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But, um, but you know, supporting the artists so that they can keep doing the thing, and yeah. to hear, you know, uh, Randy Bly talking. You know, on our, on our podcast, we talked a little bit about the music industry, and he's talking about. He goes. He, he said, "Yeah, now we're we've been around long enough." that we get some of the gate. But before, like you can't make fucking money on tour. The only way you make money on tour, he goes, I'm a black t-shirt salesman. Yeah. That was how he described himself. And I was like, yes, so I need to go to a show. And when I go to a show, I need to buy the, sh you know, buy something from the band, whether it's a you know, CD or yep. something in order to support them so they can keep actually doing the stuff. And, and I, uh, 
actually really admire that and it really makes me sick of fucking parasites who you know I want to have this music and listen to it all the time so I'm just going to download it because I can with my torrent this that whatever like you guys it doesn't get yeah there's always going to be another band that you're going to like it is true you know it's an end of supply if you help participate in this band like getting jobs at gas stations or you know going to you know, use their college degrees eventually or whatever it is. And they go away and they stop playing the music, but there's going to be another one for you. Yeah, 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 that's great. But uh, people who are, you know, who are buying the, the physical sort of things, at least supporting the stuff. And one of the things that actually Randy brought up on, the, on that podcast too was the, the um, Peter Frampton's testimony in front of Congress about the, the proceeds of streaming, uh, you know, all of the millions of times that Do You Feel Like We Do was streamed. And what, 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 it was something it ridiculous, was, low. It, I can't remember. You'd have to listen to, I think that's, it's 39 or something, 40 podcasts, whatever. Um, episode 40, I think. But the, uh, but it was just a ridiculous sum of money. If it was, you know, 55 million downloads and $1,700 or 5 million downloads and $17 or whatever it was, you know, but you're, it's like, okay, we need to find a better way to um, support people who are, you know, producing music like that, Tim, you just described, like, fuck. I just, when he was describing that, I was popping it into my phone. It will be purchased. <laughs> as soon as we're done talking because if it moved a friend like that a friend like him that profoundly i i'm jealous that i don't have that experience and um so i want that too um so and it's one of those things it or if mark sends me a link and like check this out i buy it without because there's something there my friends, if it means enough to you, I want to understand who my friends are more. So I will fucking, and I will dig into that thing so profoundly deep and pull it apart trying to figure out why this was important enough for them to mention it. I'll, I'll share the video with you when we're finished up here. Okay. Perfect. It was, it was super good. And So did you get the second Idols record yet? I'm still into the first uh, you're one. You're still in the first one. I bet you've, yeah, torn it apart. Yes. Because that. <laughs> oh, fuck. It's so fucking good. Yeah. And I'll buy the ne- other one when that one, I'm like, okay, I've torn this apart. I need to move on. It, yeah, and I don't have physical copies of those ones yet, but I will. I yeah. will find them. Yeah, when the the important stuff. It's a it's a book. Yeah, I choose to read it on my Kindle because I was you know used to travel a lot, but I always have a physical copy that I, you know I'm like okay yes I add to cart add to cart, you know or whatever like I I I want to have that physical representation of the of the thing. I have to. I've never I've never bought a record on iTunes. I have to have a physical copy in my hand. And what I love now about people that are still making hardcore records, you know, in vinyl, is that everybody now is including a digital download. Sure. So I can have the convenience of playing it off of my computer once yeah. it's downloaded, but I'm still holding the record. Yeah. 
you know. Yeah. That's probably still why I, you know, I have hundreds of cassettes. And I have, you know. Stop. Stop right there. I'm I'm going to go in the closet and slash my wrists. Yeah. Actually, maybe my friend Jonathan still has... So I had this ottoman from my grandmother, and you could lift the lid of the ottoman off, and it was like no. the perfect height where it it'd hold like sixty cassettes or something like that. And <sighs> and I was moving around so much, and I'm like, "Would you look after this for me?" And I think I gave him some of the vinyl that I had, and and now this is so fucking long ago that I don't expect it to exist still. But there's a couple of cassettes in there, the you know, with the weird the little illustrations that I made or the photos that I you know cut out of magazines and yeah. you know do you still have a cassette player tim yeah i mean i yeah i, I my, know the, i knew the answer to that question it, but. yeah in my garage in park city where the cassettes live and they're like alphabetized cassette holders so this would be another interesting <laughs> thing because us when we lived in boulder and all of my, the whole CD collection, whatever it was at the time. Yeah. I should say 1,500 CDs. I'll, I, I know roughly how much time it took to rip all of them to digital <laughs> files. I have never done mine. It, so long. It, it, was, it was basically 10 a day for three months. I, I think it was it, it, something like that, you know, and I took some days off because I, but, um, and, uh, and Rolo was there at the house and he's looking and he's like, I am trying to understand your method of organization <laughs> because it couldn't, for me, the alphabetical is just too simple. There's no emotion to it. Like it had, there was another, oh, when I want to feel like this, it's this section. If I have a sound, you know, I want this soundtrack because I need this sort of productivity inducing thing or ah, I'm super pissed. That's this one here. He's just like, <laughs> He goes, so no one could come in and find what they wanted. I'm like, unless they're me. I I love that. But I'm <laughs> married and my wife is a music fan too, so everything is alphabetical. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> How many records do you have, Sean? Oh, what do you think? Record CDs and cassettes? Sure. Phys- physical copies of of actual music probably over 10,000 Tim I mean off the top of my head that number seems like it's got me beat but I bet it's not but I yeah I mean to take it accurate inventory it would be it would be difficult because I have how many records fit in a record box that would be that's what I need to go count right exactly (laughs) Yeah, because like seven inches, because that's my kind of thing, is collecting seven inches. Yeah. I have so and I certainly have more LPs than, than 45 or seven inches, yeah. but I have a good amount of those as well. One of the coolest experiences on working on the Justice League movie was having, you know, this a, a incredible gym that Zach, you know, basically told the production, you know, get whatever these guys want. I don't care what it costs. You have to build this gym, and this gym is going to have a bar in it, and that bar, well, and it did, um, and that, and it be mostly in the mornings it was a coffee bar. Uh-huh. I mean, no, in the mornings it was a coffee bar, not mostly. Um, 
but we also Jason brought bought a turn you know uh, Clay Enos bought an incredible sound system for the place and uh, Jason Momoa bought a fucking turntable and he had this like portable record case this cool art all over it that he would bring and and obviously there's a few staples that stayed you know every Metallica you know so like I don't know if I hear Ride the Lightning one more time or whatever that fucking record is called the maybe it's the blue one I don't know yeah that's right um, Lightning. <laughs> like yep. Jason stop stop it's cool it's just less cool today, please. But so there were some that stayed in the gym, but every now and then, like he'd go away and he'd go back and then he met the lady who was the manager at Rough Trade in, uh, uh, in, in London and would go in there and would just go on these binges and he'd bring music and it was so fucking cool to like, and then same Clay had come and he'd bring like, ah, I was at the used record store, here, check this out, like this, you know, this copy of Thin Lizzy Jailbreak or, you know, whatever, you know, something like that. And it's like so nice to, like you put it on, start the motor going, move the swing arm, drop it down, it cracks, it pops, it's fucking glorious. And to like, and then Stu, who was helping me, he starts getting into it and starts buying vinyl and like, Stu, it's, <laughs> Stu, I, I, I highly recommend whatever, you know, digital edge that, cause, because if you live in England, your house is never going to be that big. You're just never going to have a place for 10,000 records that you're going to buy in the next three years. But it was, it, it was a, like nice to go back to that tactile experience that shit, you fuckers. <laughs> Sounds the best. Yeah. It's not going to sound the best to my neighbors. <laughs> not only, yeah, you're right. It does sound the best. But the thing about records, even more so than CDs or cassettes, is there is an intent to listen to it. And you don't get that with any other medium. And I, that's why I love vinyl. Because you have to, there's just an, you sit down with intention to, I'm going to listen to this record. I'm and, going to find this record now. Yes. I'm going to take it out. Maybe have to clean it. Maybe, you know, and there's this process where you, and it's ritual. And it's one of the things to me where the intent is, hey, and I do. It influences the experience. Yeah. And I sit down and I do exactly what, what Tim was describing, where I... I read the lyrics when they're going, you know, and I'm just like, oh, fuck. And those simple truths that come out in a fucking great hardcore song, just you're just like, oh, why the fuck couldn't have I said that? And I, I always joke about it. I'm like, I think Kill Your Idol said everything I ever wanted to say, just better than I could have. That's it. Every band I like says everything I want to say better. <laughs> That's why I was probably <laughs> To never. a kind of pretty cool musical backing yeah yeah <laughs> this feels like a pretty sean you've got a you've got a <clears throat> record to buy yes i do have a record to buy now um you have a record to buy yes i do all on, right yeah on your recommendation Oh, all right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I was a, like, wait, you're in a band now with a record? And I yeah, buy no, it? No, 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 no. <laughs> that would be, you have a record to make. <laughs> yes, I... Please come to uh, 
the nonprofit event center, which we have converted into a recording studio just for this purpose, you have to make the record in 48 hours because it needs to be a gym again on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a stretch. And I could actually probably do it. At one time, I could have done yeah. it. Not now. Um, I was going to say, this feels like a kind of a logical conclusion for... Uh, I'm just going to say volume one because... I would love to continue the next time the three of us are in a room together. Yeah. Who knows when that will be? And we can make it happen sooner than later. Yeah. It's just, we just need to um, want it enough. Well, you guys and could come to Grand Junction on October 6th and do a cyclocross race with me, and we could get a hotel because it's the 6th and 7th, the back to back race. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe? Yeah. That might just be, the, <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Uh, as Ian said today, I just need to work on my dismount and remount. <laughs> Mostly the... Oh, fuck, I can't go running with a fucking bike in my hand. Then I jump d- the barriers. I just can't quite... You mean like bunny hop them? Yeah. See no, you, but in, to be, see you to in two be, years. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> to be fair, like it seems like the U.S. cyclocross scene is is not like Europe. And there's there's almost non-existent running with a bike here. Okay. It happens. You're like, oh, I got to dismount and run up some stairs, you know, 10 flight of stairs. Right. I'm not running through hundreds of meters of mud. That's okay. You can't pedal through. That doesn't really happen here. In my experience. Yeah, there's two races in Colorado a year where it turns where into yeah. the... Yeah, the Boulder Reservoir 5K cyclocross race. Yeah, in Salt Lake racing up there, it was dry for the first eight or ten races, and then you raced in the snow. That was that. Selling it pretty good. Yeah. yeah still, I, 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 I still can't quite buy. <laughs> the spectating's but, good. Yeah, that, that could... Uh, I, I think October, I, I think that quick, which is basically next weekend, won't. It is feasible. I've got to get. A, I've got to get a bike built. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you've got something to do. Yeah. The, the uh, you know maybe I'll yeah, maybe I'll get to it. I don't know. Uh, the that time frame. Um, I just have to take it back to. You know, something that Scott and I always said to each other. I think it came up on the Rebecca pod- podcast was, you know, what Scott said once was, which anyone can beat me for the first two hours. I feel my engine is starting to get pretty good about then. Yeah. And at 45 minutes of super sort of zone four or five intensity, I don't know if I'm... It just... Laura said it. I just don't want to feel that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we shall, we will reconvene. I mean, I, I feel like this was, it was this, yeah, I feel like it was the start. But, Good start. Yeah. 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 Thank you guys for sharing a little bit of the, um, for, you know, educating me and sharing a little bit of your personal history on the, with the relationship with the straight edge. Uh, ideal because it was 
yeah, my recent experience um, kind of polluted it a little bit, and I was having a bit of an existential crisis. So. <laughs> I'm sorry you had that experience. Yeah, me too. I've I mean, had them. I've had them. You know. Yeah. There's shitty people in all walks of life. It's all walks. Yeah. And every now and then we get to. Uh, Let's see, they, they, they uh, quote Rollins to close it out, they decorate our lives. And then, uh, yeah, just like, uh, it's just a really shit taste. And so it's better now. Thank, Thank you, you guys. You're welcome. You're welcome.